enlarge this, turn this crank, pull this lever, <laughs> and then you've got a podcast. Hello. Welcome to Tencent Takes, the podcast where we smash society's holiday spirit one issue at a time. My name is Mike Thompson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, the mangler of mistletoe, Jessica Frazier. Pew, 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 pew. What's up? <laughs> How are you doing? Uh, just throwing up some pansexual finger guns, you know, <laughs> getting into the holiday <laughs> spirit. Oh, wait, it's not that holiday. It's always that holiday. <laughs> <laughs> If you are new to the show, the purpose of our podcast is to look at comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We like to check out the coolest, the weirdest, the silliest moments, and then examine how they are woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. If you're enjoying the show so far and you want to help us grow, it'd be a huge help if you would rate and or review us on Apple Podcasts, on Podchaser, and or Good Pods. All of those really help with our discoverability. And likewise, we'd love to have you join our little community on the web. Over on social media, you can find us as Tencent Takes, all one word, on every major platform out there. So today we're going to be gathering around the Yule Log and talking about how comic books have collided with holidays in general, and then look at the Marvel holiday specials in particular. But before we do that, we're recording this at the end of Hanukkah, and Christmas is right around the corner. So instead of asking what is one cool thing that you've read or watched lately, I'm going to ask what is your default piece of holiday-themed pop culture that you regularly find yourself consuming? Is it a comic? Is it a movie? A TV special? A book? So I'm a little bit of a wolverine when it comes to the holidays. <laughs> I'm not much of a holiday person, and I, I am very bah humbug. <laughs> My family you got doesn't that like it. They spirit. get very irritated. I do. I mean, I'm like, I'm all about helping other people. I'm not like actually like some miserly bee, but like, I just, I don't know. The holidays feel very commercial for me, and so for me, it doesn't have the same effect that it might for people that celebrate for a different reason. For me, I just see all of the presents and the kind of commercialism that goes behind like acquiring things and I, I don't know yeah it just doesn't seem very meaningful to me in that way that being said I was thinking about it after I got this question I was thinking really hard and I do really enjoy this sounds so stupid but I really enjoy one of the supernatural Christmas episodes <laughs> like the tv show that just ended yeah yeah okay. yeah and so there's this one Christmas episode that has this anti-clause that's like taking people like very violently out of their beds and dragging them back up out of the chimney, but like with no magic. So they're just like bones cracking and you can like hear it oh going up. The oh, it was rough. It was rough. <laughs> but dude, it's such a good episode. It's like one of those ones that has you like kind of cringing because the boys get into some trouble themselves. And so it's, you know, of course, as always, but it's a good one. <laughs> I watched maybe the first two seasons of that show and i liked it but i was stunned to learn how long it was on before it finally ended like it was on for 
I want to say like 15 years, right? It was. It was 15 years, 15 seasons. And it was, I mean, let's be honest, like it was really gasping out there. <laughs> I haven't, I'm not up to date. I'm not up to date with it. Right. I haven't seen the last, I, I kind of know what happens because I've listened to some some interviews about it. But I just, I, I kind of fell off and I may go back and watch it a little bit more. But I, you know, for right now, it can just be what it is. I really like the first few seasons and that more has a nostalgia thing for me. Because right. when I was in France, the people who were working as assistant teachers who were from like the English speaking countries were doing like DVD swaps with each other. And one of my friends was like, hey, check out this show and handed me Supernatural. And I just remember being in my little attic French apartment studio, <laughs> sitting there with my laptop and just watching Supernatural in my little twin bed and just being like, what is this? <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. So what about you, Mike? This will probably surprise nobody, but mine is a 1980s artifact. It's this movie that for the longest period of time was very kind of just, I think, overlooked and, and kind of forgotten about. But it's become in the last few years kind of this cult classic, and it's called Santa Claus the Movie. It's from 1985. It was produced by the same people who actually gave us the original Superman movies with Christopher Reeve. Mm. And it was directed by the same guy that did the Supergirl movie with Peter O'Toole and Helen Slater. And then also, he was the same guy that also directed Christopher Reeve in Somewhere in Time. Oh, okay. It's basically a superhero origin story for Santa Claus. And it's got all the crazy production values of a weird big budget 80s movie. So there's like lots of hand-drawn animation and stuff. It also stars Dudley Moore and John Lithgow, who is in his like full you know, scene-chewing 1980s villain mode. And <laughs> Lithgow recently gave an interview to the AV Club and called it, quote, one of the tackiest movies I've ever been in. Uh, <laughs> like, That's saying a lot. I mean, it's so over the top. I think a lot of people at the time viewed it seriously, and cult classics weren't quite the thing that they are now. So, yeah, I loved it. I've had that look on my face because I've been racking yeah. my brain trying to decide whether or not I've actually seen this movie before because it sounds so familiar. It was a mainstay on television networks for the longest period of time. Like the first copy that we ever had, we recorded it off of some TV broadcast. So you would always see like the first second or two of a commercial break before my dad would stop it. And then he would get it set up so that we would have as few commercial breaks as possible. Listen to this, kids. This is what we used to have to go through to You're get a movie. Soft. We couldn't just go on the internet. We couldn't just look. We couldn't just Google. What's Google? We didn't know. It's the 80s. Like... <laughs> <laughs> you had to go to the video store, and there was a good chance that they only had like one or two copies, and it was all checked out on a Friday night. And then you were stuck with whatever the remains were, the dregs on the shelves. Like people get into fistfights in the aisles of Blockbuster. Right. Or if you're hyper fixated yeah. like me, you'll just keep getting the same movie over and over again, even though you've seen it a hundred times, but you love watching it so much that it's a comfort film. Hello, Watcher in the yep. Woods. I was a weird <laughs> kid. I keep telling you this. Oh, man. They, didn't they remake Watcher in the Woods recently? Probably, but I didn't see I it. I feel like they did. So it's weird because you watch Santa Claus the movie and it feels... Like they were giving Santa Claus the Superman treatment, which makes sense because when you find out the people who are involved in the production of it, it totally checks out. 
it also weirdly had a comic book adaptation. Marvel adapted it into one of their Marvel super specials in the 80s, which were these magazine format kind of prestige comics. So they were like really glossy. They were thick. They had really nice artwork. And then they would sometimes reprint them as standard comics on kind of cheaper print and all that. But that's how they did Labyrinth. That's how they did Dune in the 80s. They also did Willow. And I think the first one was a Kiss book, but I can't remember. So anyway, that's cool. Yeah, it's a fun one. It's one of the few movies that I can turn on with the kids that's like pre late 90s and they'll actually sit down and watch it. Like they actually really dig that one. That's good. You're finding some common ground through nostalgia, which I love. It's one of those movies that, yeah, it shows its age, especially in the production values, but it's charming. And I think everybody kind of gloms onto that, you know, as opposed to a lot of the other stuff that's come out since then. And we'll talk about that in a minute. There's a lot of really bad holiday entertainment. Oh, I've seen Hallmark. (sighs) Right. I mean, (laughs) I got... I got paid to take my siblings to go see Jingle All the Way in theaters. Yikes. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I've managed to repress most of that. Thank God. But I learned apparently the action figure they put out to coincide with that movie. Apparently, it's a huge collector's item now and goes for hundreds of dollars. I'm like, why? Like, not everything needs to be collectible. It's the weirdest shit that just gets to be so much money. Like you and I have talked about recently with quite a few things. (laughs) I hate it. Well, should we hook up the reindeer and take this sleigh out for a ride? (laughs) All right. I got to preface this whole talk by saying before I started researching holidays and comic books, I didn't realize how utterly massive of a topic this was going to be. And honestly, it's kind of overwhelming. Like, Holiday content in comic books is, I would say, just as prevalent as it is in any other form of media. And you could easily write a book on this subject, but it also seems like nobody really has done that. And serious exploration of the subject outside of occasional articles doesn't really seem to exist. And even those occasional articles that I read while I was researching all of this, they're pretty surface level. So we're going in a bit more blind on this topic than I would normally like to. But I just want to note that in case I get something wrong, which is very possible, there's just not a lot of easy to access information about this subject in general. Hey, it's still going to be fun, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. (laughs) So, okay, true or false, Santa Claus has been around longer than Superman in comic books. Ooh, that's a good question. Oh, because Superman's one of the OGs. Right. Okay, I'm, oh, I don't know. It's Santa, though. Santa's the OG. I'm going to have to say true just on that point. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Oh! True. So comics, as we know them, got really big in the 1930s. The first Christmas story in a standard comic is from 1934 in Famous Funnies number 5, which is roughly four years before Superman first appeared in Action Comics number 1. And then major publishers have been doing tons of holiday specials over the years since then and santa has featured in a lot of different books so santa claus appeared i think in 1943 in superman's christmas adventure which if i remember right was a comic that was being given out at participating department stores and then since then he has just appeared in comics all over and it's gone all the way up to the present now that said 
there has actually been a really long tradition of special Christmas issues in comics, and that actually goes back to British comics in the 19th century. They would have those special Christmas edition issues of what were basically penny dreadfuls, you know, at the time, because they were marketed towards oh. kids. Yeah. Yeah. And then these comics would usually have more pages than a regular issue, and they would come with a free gift. And then the stories inside would nearly always be about the main characters celebrating or being involved in some sort of a Christmas story. And weirdly, another long tradition with these Christmas editions was that they would feature snow on the title of the masthead to kind of like give it a winter theme, in quotes. Now, I've got another question, which is, how many comics do you think feature the concept of Christmas from the 1930s through today? Uh Whoa, okay. Um <laughs> probably so many. I'm gonna say at I mean at least a thousand. I'm gonna say fifteen hundred. You're headed in the right direction. According to Comic Vine, there are two thousand five hundred and fifty-eight comics with the concept of Christmas appearing in their pages. Holy moly. Yeah, but we gotta take that figure with a grain of salt because Comic Vine, it's all user provided data for a lot of this stuff. So mm. it's probably not the most accurate count, but it's at least a good kind of finger on the pulse gauge for a rough measurement of all this. Now, I mentioned that Santa teamed up with Superman pretty early on, but he also showed up across all the other publishers. His first appearance in Marvel was in Strange Tales number 34, which is from 1955. And what's interesting is it doesn't appear that dedicated holiday comic series really much of a thing until the late 80s and early 90s. Instead, it appears that most of the holiday comics were usually one-shot issues or very small series with very limited runs. I was going through Comic Book Realm, and I only found a handful of series that came out with multiple issues across multiple years. And these were almost universally in kid-friendly brands. So we're talking series like Archie's Christmas Stocking, Bugs Bunny's Christmas Funnies, the Walt Disney Christmas Parade, which has four volumes and 26 issues over the years. And I think those were actually collections of newspaper comics that ran and they'd be randomly placed so that people had to search for them. And usually you had to search through a bunch of ads to get to them, but they were like Christmas themed, oh. you know, Disney comics in the newspaper, which, you know, <laughs> that's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Turns out Disney has been linked to capitalism for quite some time. Oh, you don't say. I know. But yeah, this is kind of like holiday content across other mediums. I kind of view it as Christmas-themed TV episodes. Sometimes you would get a specially themed episode as part of a larger season, and it's usually as a standalone story. And so you would see Christmas stories within larger series across the medium. Like, that wasn't that unusual. But more recently, the stories have really started to cover all the different genres. So you could have like family books, which are like more kid friendly stuff. You could have horror like Hellboy had a Christmas story. There was, you know, the usual adventure. There's humor. Like I remember in the early 90s, there's an issue of the Incredible Hulk fighting the villain Rhino, who's dressed as a mall Santa. Oh, no. <laughs> you know, there, there's something for everyone. Like, a couple of years ago, Sarah actually got me a copy of Jonah Hex 34, which is this weirdly funny story about Jonah Hex tracking down the gang responsible for the death of this wealthy philanthropist, who 
would normally dress up as Santa for the local orphanage. But my stepdaughter doesn't like the cover because it's got Jonah Hex threatening Santa with a gun. It's not Santa. It's Jonah's father, actually, who just happens to have a white beard. And basically Jonah is like, you need to go in there and entertain those orphans or I'm going to put a third nostril in your nose. (laughs) Oh my gosh. But my stepdaughter hates that book with a passion, so I can't put it out during the holidays anymore as decoration. There's even a Hellraiser Dark Holiday special from 1991 that features a story written by our friend Dan Chichester. Aw, friend of the podcast. Yeah. Like, I actually chatted with him ahead of this because I was wondering if he'd been involved in the Marvel Holiday specials, and he was like, no, but I did work on this. And he sent me the artwork for the book and everything. It was fantastic. It's funny. I was looking for his name as we were reading the issues, and I was hoping it would pop up, and it didn't, and I was bummed. (laughs) I was genuinely surprised. Yeah. Yeah, same. And there was Daredevil in there and everything, and I was, I'm not going to lie, I was a little offended we didn't see our buddy in there. Right. Now, that said, a lot of these comics are kind of unremarkable, but some of them have become collector's items later on. I've noticed, like, a number of recent holiday issues are scarce, and they're being snapped up by speculators. So DC Comics did DC Special Series number 21, which features Frank Miller's first Batman art. And he's the guy who did Batman Year One and The Dark Knight Returns. Mm. So that's become a collector's item. Elvira's House of Mystery, which was a spinoff of the long-running horror anthology House of Mystery, had a holiday special that's now pretty highly sought after, especially in the last couple of years where Elvira has had an undeniable cultural resurgence. And then the Solson Christmas special featuring Samurai Santa contains the first professional comic art by Jim Lee. And that's another very expensive comic these days. So now what's interesting is even though Christmas is super popular as a holiday topic in a lot of books across the industry, other holidays are not. Hanukkah is really underrepresented. Comic Vine only lists 27 issues with that concept appearing and that's depending on spelling and then i haven't found any mention of kwanzaa in mainstream comics like it's genuinely a bummer and you would think that by 2021 maybe that would start to change a little bit but turns out not so much but i mentioned a minute ago that most of these holiday comics were one-shot specials or miniseries and that said i think marvel was the first publisher to do a consistent series of superhero anthology books for the holidays, and that started in the early 90s. I might be wrong about that, but it doesn't take away that the books we're about to talk about are just this really fun time capsule. I'm excited. Yeah, they were really they were really interesting to go through for sure. Yeah. Well, the Marvel Holiday Special started in 1991, and that was when Marvel decided to start publishing a series of these special anthology issues focused around the holidays. And these were originally published annually from late 1991 to 1996. We're going to focus on these specific books because I feel like these are part of the OG superhero anthology series. Marvel would eventually resurrect it and bring it back, but I don't think those issues are as interesting to talk about. Now, the first issue of the holiday special was released in December of 1991, And for a holiday comic, there's a lot of talent that was involved in this issue. So first off, we have the cover, which I'm going to ask you to describe. Now, I know that you've read this issue. I know you've seen the cover, but I want you to describe this because it is a a visual treat. 
No, it sure is. So it is a wraparound cover. And so if you have it spread open, the first thing we see is Santa Claus and a reindeer running like full tilt away from the entire Marvel cast. <laughs> like anyone you can think of, you know, there's we have the Fantastic Four there, Captain Ultra's there, we've got Punisher, Ghost Rider, like Thor, Captain America, Wolverine. I mean, the gang's there, the whole gang's there. Spider Man's yeah, swooping. It, and it's largely <laughs> characters that are all from this issue. I don't think there's anyone in here that doesn't appear. Correct. Yeah, everyone is in there. Correct. Yeah, so for some reason, they are threatening. Mr. Claus, and he is just running full tilt away. And they look very menacing, I might add. They're all like <laughs> aiming things at him. Nobody's like firing, but they definitely look poised and ready to do so. And it says, Stop that bearded man from Captain America. And then Wolverine says, Yeah, no one gives me a lump of coal and lives, bub. <laughs> like, okay, yikes. It's very silly, and it feels like everything you would want from a Christmas superhero issue. The other thing I love is that this was so the era of the, like, bubble letters. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, we have Marvel that looks like it has snow on it, and then Holiday is, like, in bubble snow letters. It's, like, it's so basic 90s. I kind of love it. Like, I, I realize I that's too. the nostalgia talking, but I love it. <laughs> really brings me back. I mean, the pink is basically day glow. Yeah. So. All right. So now that cover was actually drawn by Art Adams. And Adams is widely considered to be this incredible talent in comics. And he's known for really beautiful, really detailed work. But the downside is that his art is so labor intensive that he's got a slower output than a lot of artists. But he's still one of my all time favorite pencilers in the industry. And then there were a ton of other really notable creators involved in this book. They had Scott Lobdell, Dave Cockrum, Walt Simonson, Al Milgram, who wrote US One, that comic that we talked about mm -hmm. with the, the superhero Big Rig Trucker, Ron Lim, who was penciling Silver Surfer at the time, and Klaus Jansen, who co-created Terror with Dan Chichester and Margaret Clark for the comic St. George over under Marvel's epic imprint. Would you do me a favor? Would you summarize the 1991 issue? Yeah, absolutely. So all of these were anthology, so I'll just go through the stories. The first one was called A Miracle a Few Blocks Down from 34th Street. And this was starring the new X-Men, Alba, Jean, Scott, Moira, and Xavier, who were all MIA doing other things during the story. So they're at the mansion discussing going to the Rockefeller Center for a Christmas party. And then they get a ping from Xavier's Cave of Wonders, sensing that there is the most powerful mutant that they've yet to sense coming from somewhere. And that somewhere just happens to be the most 90s place of all, the mall. <laughs> <laughs> so they head over to the mall. They run into a group who introduces themselves as the Brotherhood of the Evil Mutants, which vary to the point. And they, of course, need to brawl. And after a quick molecular change into their official X-Men fighting costumes, because they were somehow somewhat incognito this whole time. Yeah, I think Storm like gives a burst of electricity and that changes the fabric of their clothing. It's sure. Why not? Yeah. 
Exactly. It was like, sure, you can do that too. Perfect. And everything seems to be going downhill. A man in a red suit with a white beard and mustache, you know the guy, ends up showing up to help the group, turning the Brotherhood of the Evil Mutants into literal plastic action figures. And he introduces himself as Chris Kringle, and then they are transported outside the Rockefeller Center where they were supposed to be meeting anyway, without any memory of the past hour, nor of their jolly accomplice. Yeah, and it's actually really cute because not only is it like this fun X-Men adventure, but it ends with the exact same scene that kicks off the first new X-Men Christmas story in X-Men number 98. So it was mm. it was meant to be a prequel to that specific issue, but if you didn't know that, wow. it felt like a pretty, like it felt like a, an X Men story that could have taken pretty much at any point in time during that era. Yeah, absolutely. That is how it felt. Yeah. Well, our second story is called A Christmas Coda, and follows Franklin Richards of the Fantastic Four family, along with Sue Storm, who are both out shopping. And Franklin wants to get a present for his dad, but only has 50 cents. And he spies an ornament he likes, but it also costs 50 cents. So he decides to wait to spend his money to find something for his dad. But his mom's like, oh, no, you were so good of not spending your money. So I bought this ornament for you. And so (laughs) there he has the ornament. Yay for him, right? Well, Franklin gets separated from his mom because he's a, you know, wiggly little squirt. In New York. runs across a man in New York. I know, right? Kid needs a leash or something. (laughs) I'm totally pro-leashing your children. I don't care. Do it. Not going to find judgment from me. If it's good enough for my dog, it's good enough for my child. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. So Franklin runs across a man in an alley that's wearing clothing not of this time and a cloth bandage around his head and jaw. I don't know who that sounds like. He's covered in chains. <laughs> Not weird at all. <laughs> nope. And so Franklin goes to find help for the man sitting in the snowbank and sees a woman selling keys that will open anything. Of course, casual. And the cost is whatever you have that is dear to you. So he gives over the only money he has, the 50 cents, but the key, you know, doesn't budge. He can't pick it up. And so he parts with the ornament and the key jumps into his hand. And so he runs over to the snowbank and Franklin's mom, who's wordly looking for him, sees him running off where he wants to go unlock the man's shackles and he does it, but the guy's like disappearing. And so he thinks it's too late. However, there's a sudden burst of light where the man stands fully restored and hands a gold box to Franklin. And Franklin gives the box to his father for Christmas and also tells the story of how he got the box. And then upon opening the box, which appears to be from the 1800s, you know, because they just know that inside, they find the ornament that Franklin had paid the key seller and a coin, which was also from the 1800s. Yeah. It was like actually from the year that a Christmas Carol was written. Yeah, exactly. And so Reed of course is like, Oh, that was the year and proceeds to tell them a story that that situation reminds him of that was written back at that time, which was obviously Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Yeah. If I didn't make that clear. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and then that story was penciled by Art Adams as well. And, like, you can see 
just how good his art is like all the way throughout it it's it's just it's so good oh yeah it was beautiful and i really liked seeing sue move above the crowd when she was like going and she didn't even bother making herself invisible everyone's just looking at her (laughs) it's like what are you doing girlfriend (laughs) yeah and that's something that i always kind of liked is that the fantastic four are a weird blend of superheroes and scientists but they're also celebrities Mm -hmm. so you know it's like they don't really care about showing off their powers in public which i always kind of dug yeah yeah it's kind of an interesting spin from the ones who are like gotta hide Yep. well story three is titled Midnight Drear, and night is spelled like K-N-I-J-H-T, like a knight. And it's a short story about Punisher busting what seems to be a drug or trafficking deal in the middle of a camp of unhoused folks. And the guys start getting away with the suitcase of what is assumed to be money, and Punisher goes after the car, and he gets shot in the process of trying to stop the car, which ends up exploding, sending money flying everywhere. And the same people who were once complaining about their predicament were now plucking money out of the air, stating they were able to make a new start with the funds they were picking up. Yeah. So Merry Christmas, everyone. Yeah, it's implied that, well, this is actually happening on Christmas Eve or Christmas night. And that's really kind of the only... And, you know, it's New York and it's snowy. That's... It's because crime doesn't take a holiday, Mike. well the fourth story is called twas a midwinter's night and is starring thor god of thunder there is a great storm brewing and a nordic woman is praying for her husband and his fishing ship to return safely like og nordic like from the time of thor and in asgard odin thor and the rest of the family notice the storm and find that the cause of the weather is due to an asteroid that is plummeting towards their land. And so a goblin creature named Grylak the Greater comes to take credit for the asteroid and asks that Odin surrender his kingdom. Thor does not dig this and goes to find Grylak, smashing up the asteroid with his hammer in the process and effectively beating his foe. Back on land, the husband's fishing boat returns, and in the night, a shadowed figure has left food and gifts under the tree of life that was placed in the praying woman's home. Yeah, and basically, smashing the asteroid causes, like, a star to appear in the sky, which guides the husband home safely. Yeah, that's that's what I missed. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> Thank you. And it's Mike for the assist. So, story five is called Precious Gifts and follows Steve Rogers, the cap himself, as he goes to help serve Christmas dinner for impoverished vets. He finds out that the woman he's serving dinner with might be Bucky's sister and goes to do some digging at Avengers headquarters, where he's easily able to find the government records no problem from their computers at the Avengers headquarters, which... That has me majorly questioning the security in this version of reality. (laughs) If the Avengers are just able to pull up like any damn buddy they want in the system. Well, and this is like 91 before the internet was really a thing. So I want to know where these records were being kept in the first place. That's what I'm saying. Like, there's no cloud. No. (laughs) You know? (laughs) So yeah, they're just able to like magically get this information somehow in the 90s. And he verifies that she is in fact Bucky's sister and so he goes out on Christmas to give a memento from Bucky's service and to tell her about working with him. And Cap also gets misty-eyed about the choices he's made that make having a family and a normal life impossible. 
So when he goes to leave, the sister gets the loneliness vibe that Cap is putting off and invites him to Christmas, telling him that he is now a part of their family, too. Yep. So the sixth story is called Ghost of Christmas Present. And the star of this story is Ghost Rider. And it begins with a blind boy named Willie who has been kidnapped from his bed and is on the run trying to escape from his abductors. So 90s trope number one, stranger <laughs> danger. We'll call him out, uh. friends. Don't worry. We miss him. Tweet at us. <laughs> so it's snowing. Willie only has on pajamas and a small blanket to tie around himself to keep warm. And he's found by one of his captors who hits him. And as he goes to strike the kid again, he gets a surprise hit from a chain and goes down for the count. Willie goes to find out who a savior is and thinks it's Santa based on the boots and what sounds like bells to him. This, however, is a flaming headed ghost rider who then sets to taking care of the other members of the gang that had kidnapped Willie. He, of course, defeats the bad guys, taking Willie back home and dumping him on the doorstep, where he is then reunited with his parents, who hear the commotion outside, and tells his parents about how Santa saved him from the bad men. Yeah, and like, I feel it needs to be called out that Ghost Rider beats the holly jolly shit out of these guys. Like, you know, and oh, he, he yeah. was one of those extreme kind of anti-heroes from Marvel in the early 90s, part of that supernatural resurrection that they were doing. And, you know, he had no qualms about, like, murdering evildoers. He was in the Punisher's camp, only with more of a supernatural bent. Oh, absolutely. So, story seven is titled, It Came and Went on a Midnight Clear. We'll notice that the themes are very repetitive. They really can only pluck a few different Christmas-themed things out of the <laughs> air, really. From what yeah. I'm seeing of the repetitive nature of, like, if it's not a Christmas carol, it's going to be about Santa. So we have <laughs> I mean, that to look forward to, friends. Repetitive holiday content. It's almost like every holiday album ever. And you wonder why I'm bah humbug about this. I remember songs so vividly that, unfortunately, if I hear a piece of a Christmas song, it just starts playing in my brain. I don't want that all year. <laughs> I don't even want that for one month a year. I'll take it a few days. That's fine. You don't have to blast me 24-7 with it, though. <laughs> That's my you rant. You don't, you don't like it when stores start playing Christmas carols in October? You know what? I can't even go into a Michaels in October. Once October <laughs> hits, Michaels and I are done. We break up effectively for three months. So, <laughs> And I almost cried going to, into Michaels the other day. <sighs> so, <laughs> story seven. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so this one features my guy, Captain Ultra, who, after flying into a literal trash can from Thor's flying updraft, hears a man lamenting about how his family's Christmas tree up and has walked away. He thinks the guy's just drunk. So he just like goes to disregard him completely. However, the streets are filled with people who have similar stories about their Christmas trees becoming animate and just walking away. The antagonist, Plant Man, has animated the trees to return them to Earth in order to try to heal the hole in the ozone layer, because that's the way he's going to do it. Well, the hole in the ozone layer was like a big story in the early 90s, too. Like, I remember that was a huge deal. Mm-hmm. Yep. So... 
apparently he's saying, well, it's being exacerbated by the Earth's deforestation, which, hey, I agree, man, but I don't know that this one round of Christmas trees is going to do it in this one town. So Captain Ultra suggests a compromise where after the holidays, he would replant the used trees that Plantman has rerouted. There is also a final note about planting a replacement tree after the holidays or having a potted tree to reduce the amount of trees that are actually killed for Christmas each year. So it was like advice you could take home with you. Yeah, it it was a cute and unexpected message about conservation in the middle of a bunch of Christmas stories. Yeah. And Captain Ultra is this, he's like beyond a D-list superhero. I don't quite know what category that would put him in, but he's always this kind of joke character. he showed up in two of these fucking issues. He showed up in two of them. Yep. Which we'll get to my favorite thing about him (laughs) when we get to his other story. I won't spoil it, but he is a gem. (laughs) Yeah. No, he's great. He's one of the characters where I specifically went on eBay and tracked down his first appearance a number of years ago. And uh, you'll be shocked to hear that has not appreciated well in value. Well, that's fine for me because I actually was thinking I kind of wanted to start collecting these ones myself because he is just (laughs) charming. (laughs) He's great. I relate a lot, let's just say, (laughs) to Captain Ultra, but not in the superhero sense, just in the first mediocrity that he lives within. So the eighth and final story is a Spider-Man carol and takes place at the children's wing of the hospital, where Peter Parker goes to take pictures of the newspaper publisher, J. Jonah Jameson, giving money to the children's ward. Totally just, you know, a publicity grab on his part. Yeah. And the clown they hired didn't show up, so Peter Parker's like, I have an idea. (laughs) And, like, (laughs) takes the one picture and pieces out and shows back up as Spider-Man, which, of course pisses off Jonah, like, to no end. And he screams that he doesn't want Spider-Man there, all while the kids tell stories of how Spider-Man saved them or those they love and recount how Spider-Man even saved J. Jonah Jameson and his family (laughs) on his wedding day. So (laughs) Spidey also senses and is able to foil the plot to take a safe that was randomly happening at the same time in the same building. Yep. And in the end, Jonah agrees to lay off of Spider-Man. For now. <laughs> I believe the words are fine until next year. It's like, ah, uh, okay. Until next year, yeah. And it's it's Christmas, and so it's just like a few days away. <laughs> yeah, it's a weirdly sweet story, though, because it's basically recounting events from earlier Spider-Man issues. But they're like, you know, like some of the stories are really nice. Like there's one about how Spider-Man actually showed up and like hung out with the kid who was terminally ill and like made him feel special for a night, which, yeah. you know, it, it was one of those stories where it felt very natural and very sweet. And I liked that one a lot, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I agree. It was nice. Okay. We've gone over all the stories in this first issue. What was your favorite story of all of these? So I really liked the X-Men story. <laughs> especially because Wolverine was just so salty about celebrating the holidays and literally said bah humbug. (laughs) (laughs) So highly relatable, like I said. (laughs) I also thought the idea of Santa being a mutant was both ridiculous and hilarious. Like, okay, fine. But his powers are turning others into toys, fitting into strange places, memory and time control. It it actually literally cracked me up. 
thinking about that. Yeah, and that's actually one of my favorite things about this issue is in the years since, the X-Men comics have introduced the concept of Omega-level mutants, who were basically like mutants who theoretically like the godlike power level. And so in the retroactive continuity of this issue, they established that Santa Claus is an Omega-level mutant. And it's, you know, it's very vague what his powers are. But it was originally a random one-off story that they were able to then retcon into something much bigger. But the funny thing is, I went online yesterday just to see what this issue was going for. And everybody's selling it for like north of 50 bucks. And they're all sitting there talking about how it's like the first appearance of Santa Claus is an Omega-level mutant. And I'm like, this speculator bubble bullshit, just I'm so sick of it capitalism fucking with everything always yeah it's uh (laughs) i don't know i think fine whatever okay now it appears that this issue was pretty successful because not only did we get a number of other marvel holiday specials but there were also other holiday specials dedicated to specific marvel characters like most of these were one shots But the Punisher, of all people, had multiple holiday specials during the early to mid 90s. Like, you know, because when I think holiday level entertainment, I think the Punisher. That's exactly it. Both the Punisher and Ghost Rider. I was like, interesting choices to have them be reoccurring characters in these holiday specials. I mean, at the time, they were top selling characters for Marvel. So it makes sense. For money, it makes sense. For the holiday, I don't know if it makes sense. Yes. That that is a very... savvy way to look at it now the next issue came out in january of 1993 so it's basically the 92 93 holiday issue and again it features some pretty great talent including larry hama who is the guy who basically created gi joe for marvel fabian nesizia who is one of deadpool's co-creators jim starlin who we've talked about before he was the guy who co-created thanos and shang chi writer artist powerhouse carl potts and then longtime hulk writer peter david who he wrote that hanukkah story featuring the incredible hulk supporting character doc samson where he's just getting more and more frustrated Mm. with the classroom full of kids and apparently it's based on a real story where he had to deal with some snotty brats so i kind of love that (laughs) would you mind giving us a quick summary of the 93 issue of course So this was, again, an anthology. It had eight stories in this one as well, starting with Zounds O' Silence, which shows many close-up action sequences of Wolverine fucking up some foes. And as indicated in the title, there are no words during these sequences. But then we find out that the battles were actually the make-believe world of a child playing with a Wolverine action figure. Yeah, and this is, like, entirely without dialogue, which Larry Hama, the writer is really famous in the industry for doing the silent issue of G.I. Joe, which is an issue that he did entirely without dialogue. So this is kind of a throwback to that. And it's been referenced and parodied and imitated numerous times since that issue first appeared in the early 80s. But when I saw that he was the writer for this, I thought that was really cute, too. Yeah. Well, story two, called Present Tense, starred the New Warriors showing a city that has a definite disparity between the rich and the poor. And each of the characters has a small exchange where they think about the holidays, closing out with the cheesy sentiment of, I'm thankful for you most of all. (laughs) It was not the most subtle of stories. No, it was definitely pretty heavy handed. And in fact, actually, they even at one point said, 
while you're laying it on pretty thick or something like that to that effect. And I was like, you're not wrong. (laughs) So the third story is called The Big Christmas Blackout, starring Spidey. I feel like I had to scream it because there was an exclamation point. Yeah, no, that's a totally uh, reasonable reaction. (laughs) When Electro steals all of New York's electricity right after Rockefeller Center has lit its tree, it's up to Spider-Man to save the holiday. He quickly defeats his foe with his own electricity, then pins a note to him before continuing on his night with MJ. Story four is called In the Spirit of the Season, and it's again starring our holiday favorite, the Punisher, (laughs) who is going after the dastardly criminals stealing charity buckets from street Santas. Let's count how many times we have people stealing from charity Santas. (laughs) This is one. All right. (laughs) But he's given the additional challenge of not resorting to lethal means to take care of his business for the next 48 hours. He just barely manages to keep within the parameters of this non-lethal bet and gets the ringleader of the gang instigating the charity theft. Yeah. What is it that he does? He basically lets the guy take a swing at him and then he's like coated his costume in some kind of like neurotoxin or something that knocks the guy out. It's weird. It's very strange. Yeah, he's he barely got around it. Like he would have killed him if he hadn't had that bet, basically. (laughs) Yeah. Which is uplifting. For the fifth story, we are now following Leonard Samson of all characters as he attempts in vain to tell a bratty Jewish class the story of Hanukkah. And the kids keep interrupting him. And so he just starts to yes and them until the story is absolutely unrecognizable. And then he gets booted out by his former teacher who had invited him to the class in the first place. And she is just beyond pissed at his version of the story. It's legit my favorite story in the entire issue. It's so good. (laughs) It's really funny. I was laughing really hard when I was reading this. And I was like, dude, you're not even trying to like control this situation. You're just like, yes, anding these kids. (laughs) He's like, yeah, and Captain America was there. It's like, it's the Hanukkah story. Yeah. And yeah, the Human Torch was actually the one who who set the burning bush for Moses on fire. Like, oh my gosh, it just escalated. <laughs> it was a poor teacher. She's never gonna be able to tell the right story. No, and it, it's genuinely funny. And Peter David has been writing stories in comics for decades now, and when he wants to be funny, I feel like there are so few people that can you know even measure up oh so good highly recommend this story (laughs) the story six is called yule memory after running across a doll thanos recalls a memory of a holiday celebration with gamora who was at that time around five years old when he gave her said doll she later saved his life by distracting an enemy by throwing the doll at him but thanos chose to incinerate the doll stating that emotion is weakness yeah and thanos has no weaknesses heaven forbid. The seventh story is titled Holiday on Ice and is centered around the villain Blizzard's brother, who has been trying to get a job after a stint in the slammer and is having a hard time finding employment due to his conviction record. He just happens to have one of his brother's Blizzard costumes, lo and behold, and decides to go after Iron Man for revenge because that seems practical. That'll solve all of his problems. Yeah, you know, Sure, why not? I I really don't know what the end game there was, but that's fine. So after a brief fight where it's very clear he's not going to win, 
he mentions his inability to find work, and Iron Man offers him a job because tis the season, I guess. Mm-hmm. And our eighth and final story is called The Wrapped Lamb and is a Daredevil story, which I was really expecting to see Dan's name on, I'm not going to lie. It feels very much like his style of humor. It does. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the story is actually told from the perspective and is narrated by this toy lamb that's purchased by Daredevil. And so the lamb goes with him as he has his lonely holiday evening through town and he goes over to different places and kind of checks in on folks going about their business in a church and at a bar, people that he's interacted with in the past, but he never enters those places, nor does he participate in those events. So the lamb grows very fond of Daredevil and imagines that he will be giving the lamb to someone really special. But in the end, he gives the lamb to a toy drive where it's unceremoniously plucked into a bin with all the other toys being given for donation. And the lamb is like weirdly salty about that. Yeah. Well, the lamb was like, I hope I'm going to someone great. And then it's just like, plunk. (laughs) (laughs) It'd been sitting in the antique store for like 30 years. And so it was like, I'm getting out, man. And then it gets <laughs> stashed into a toy thing where it's like, you know, they're not putting that in some kid's like present, you know, or if they do, that kid's going to be like, what the fuck is this? Yeah. All right. So at this point, we're on to 1994. And this time we have a lot fewer notable creators. But, I mean, you have to remember that this is right around the time that Marvel had lost a lot of their top-tier talent because they had basically decided to storm off and form Image Comics. Mm-hmm. I mean, they still had some artists and, and writers involved, but things were a lot tougher for them, and they were starting to go through financial difficulties. This time, the notable creators were Stephen Grant. He wrote that Pope John Paul comic that we talked about a while ago. Mm-hmm. Pat Broderick, he illustrated part of the New Guardian series and Ron Lim, and then there was also this industry icon named Howard Chaikin who was involved. So I feel like this is the point where it becomes a bit more of a slog, and I'm sorry to ask you to keep summarizing. That's okay. We're getting through it. I had to write all of these. (laughs) I'm going to (laughs) Sam. That's how we're doing it. So no one will be shocked at this point, I'm sure, as I tell you that this is another anthology. And this time they're starting to whittle down the stories. And this one's only six now. Yeah. And the stories themselves don't feel as long, too. So it's kind of like double trouble, which was fine because you'll see. So this first story was called Hopes and Fears, and it follows Spider-Man as he and MJ go shopping on Christmas Eve. Spidey sees a meteor approaching Earth and knows that he has to save everyone. So stashes the present he's carrying just like in an alleyway and goes after the meteor in costume. Come to find out, it's actually Mephisto, who has kidnapped the angel of hope, peace, and general Christmas spirit. Like, okay. I I didn't know that they were actually doling those duties out, but okay. I didn't either. Yeah, there's an angel for that, I guess. (laughs) And makes a big show of killing the angel after allowing Spider-Man to try his luck at saving them. And in the end, even though Mephisto thought that he had killed the angel, It gets its strength from the love and spirit of others during this holiday season and is restored somehow. It's such a weird story because like Spidey (laughs) goes down to hell and then he tries to save the angel from it's like a catapult mixed with an Iron Maiden. I don't exactly know how to describe that device. Yeah, 
It was almost like the angel was put into like a waffle maker or something with spikes instead of the waffle crisps. Yeah. And then Mephisto, because he like makes a bet with Spidey. And then because Spidey can't save the angel, Mephisto takes his soul. And then he's like, no, I want you to suffer and, and witness my victory. And so I'm putting the soul back in you and whatever. And... <sighs> Ridiculous. Which I didn't realize Mephisto could do that. There are so many just <laughs> there are so many weird things going on in that story. And it's funny because, you know, a little over a decade later, Marvel would do a whole thing where Mephisto saves Aunt May's life and then basically does it in exchange for undoing the marriage and love between Mary Jane and Peter Parker. And it's it's garbage. Like, it's just it's hot garbage. It's I can't even. Lord. Anyway. Talk about just trying to get rid of a relationship. No, honey, I swear, Mephisto said we couldn't be together anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that is some mediocre white guy bullshit. I mean. Yeah, yeah. At least it's creative. I don't know. Translated, it says I've met a blonde. <laughs> <laughs> Story number two is titled Downtime and follows Nick Fury as he bah humbugs his way through the holiday season. But a mysterious voice on a phone line and the delivery of a long-lost letter allows Nick to open his heart to those around him for the rest of the holidays. Yeah. That... <laughs> yeah. All it right. was cheesy. It was super cheesy. <laughs> the cheese continues. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the third story, called The Gift of the Marvelites, was and is starring Tom DeFalco and Mark Gruenwald, who work as, yeah. like editors or writers or there's someone who have to do with this fucking production and yeah, they it's fucking like an wrote themselves comic. into this bullshit yeah exactly so after a hard day's work and of giving everyone in the office fruitcakes which real generous of you <laughs> tom realizes that he didn't get a gift from mark and mark realizes the reverse so tom sells his favorite cigars and mark cuts off his ponytail to buy each the other a present in the end, they give each other a lighter and a hairbrush, respectively, then realize that they never needed to sell any of their possessions as they have credit cards and they could buy their own things. Yeah. And I mean, this is this is kind of the the parody of that Gifts of the Magi story by O. Henry. Like, yeah. And I'm like, this isn't even like good satire. Like, I don't know. it wasn't. They literally tape the ponytail back on the dude. In the yep. end, literally, it's taped there with a crosshatch of tape. And I'm just like, this should not stand. But here we are. <laughs> You're yawning. I agree. Yep. No, Sorry. I agree. <laughs> so story four is called Mud Pie. And it's starring <laughs> our guy, Captain Ultra, who is a stand-up comedian when he's not out there being the hero who can do anything better than you. Which is his tagline. Which, <laughs> A. I love. Do you want me to tell you how he got his that powers? That is an amazing tagline. Oh, please tell me, because this guy is like the hero I would become if I were a superhero. He went to, I believe it's a, a psychotherapist, to get hypnotized into quitting smoking. And the therapist is an alien, and it ends up unlocking his, quote, ultra potential. So... He can fly, he's like super strong, he's durable, he can fire energy blasts. And the joke is that he keeps on trying to join these teams and 
everyone's like, yeah, you're amazing. Like immediately we'll like get you in our team and it could be a villain. It could be a hero group, whatever. But the thing is, is that because he was trying to get cured of smoking, he ended up developing a fear of fire. And so he passes out as soon as he sees a flame. So that's the joke is like he tried to join the Fantastic Four, I think. And Johnny Storm gave him a thumbs up and the thumbs up was flaming. And so he passed out and everyone's like, no, forget it. We don't want you. (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. I, I just love that tagline, though. The hero who can do anything better than you. It's great. It's really, really fun. And I, I really wish Marvel would do more with him. I do, too. Now that I know, I, I really do want to go back and read more of his stuff. That's going to be my next foray because it's so funny. So he rolls into some podunk town in Texas where he's supposed to do a show and he finds that the venue is just closed and is informed by his manager that the gig was canceled. Didn't tell him, but it was. So he has no show to pay him and he has no money to go anywhere. So he decides to morph into his superhero form and go look for the townspeople, basically. Yeah, I mean, this was before the era of texting. So, of course, he's not going to find out when the gig is canceled. Yeah, I guess that's true. But (laughs) I feel like the manager was like, didn't anybody tell you? (laughs) Yeah, nope. He's like, aren't you supposed to do that? (laughs) You'd think. Well, I mean, like, you know, you actually do stand up comedy, so. I do. That's why I was relating so heavily to this guy. Yeah. Well, I don't have an agent or anything. I'm not that cool. I just go to like open mics, but I feel like you would, I mean, but to your point, you know, we live in a time where you get instant notification about things, you know, not so back in the nineties, back from our day. (laughs) (laughs) If you were really important, you had a pager. Oh, not I, I was, I was calling my mom collect. I love that. Do you accept a collect call from the movie's out and I need you to come pick me up? Bye. Yep, 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 yep. (laughs) So good. Oh, None of the kids listening to this know the struggle. None of the kids are listening to this because they have left already. They're like, this is some old person shit that we don't relate to at all. (laughs) It's very true. Oh, what a trip. So, so Captain Ultra is swallowed, literally swallowed by the earth, and he's then covered in mud and finds himself face to face with a muck monster named Mud Pie. And that would be P.I., like the number. So after finding that Mr. Pie had kidnapped the entire town, Captain Ultra gets extra fired up once he figures out that the monster was the one who actually stole his audience. So that's actually why he's mad. So after collecting all of the town folks' clothes, which he kind of played it like he was just asking for one woman's clothes, which was super sketchy. But then he takes everybody's clothes, he throws them at the monster, and the monster gets absorbed by the clothes. 100% cotton, kids. That did it. I don't know. Let's be real. It was the 90s. It was some poly bullshit. I don't know. There was some vague reference to a storm, but am I missing the point where there was something holiday related to this? No, I think it was just that it was on Christmas. Nobody does like, a comedy I, show on Christmas. No. Come on. Like, I read that no. the first time and I was like, who fucking goes out and does anything on Christmas that, like, needs an actual audience? Like, okay, whatever. I fucking wonder the town was shut down. Everybody was at home, like, having fucking Christmas. Yeah. So, also... Between this story and the next one is a very overt anti-smoking propaganda page with 
small Santa looking characters yanking, like physically yanking a cigar out of the mouth of a very surprised Wolverine. (laughs) So that would be trope number two. Love those tropes. So the fifth story is called Harvey T-Biscuit's Yule Log and is a ghostwriter story. And it's the story of a timid man named Harvey T-Biscuit who plays a very Bob Crotchety character. Yeah. Who is overworked and living with his mom. And he accidentally holds the gaze of Ghost Rider as Ghost Rider's zipping along after a criminal one day. And he just gets hella paranoid the whole day about it. And he's just like, what did I do to get on Ghost Rider's radar? Like, why did Ghost Rider hold my gaze for so long? And he was like ruminating on it all day. And then at the end of the, his workday, he goes outside and motherfucking Ghost Rider's like waiting for him. And he's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> Ghost Rider's like, hey, man, I think I may have freaked you out earlier today. <laughs> I just wanted to apologize. And literally the guy just like the only thing, his whole interaction with this guy is just his mouth open. Yeah, like, it's great. In a silent scream. <laughs> it's like every scene is just his mouth open. So Ghost Rider's like, how does your employer treat you? His mouth's just open scream. He's like, I'll go fucking ask him myself. So it goes up there and the employer sees Ghost Rider show up and he's like, how do you treat your employees? And the guy's like, I'm so sorry. I treat them like shit. And like, <laughs> it's great. You know, changes his, I'll, I'll fix, I'll change my ways. And like, does this whole bullshit. It was. It was pretty funny. So he definitely gets the the better of that situation. They get the bonus that the guy had been trying to withhold. And then Harvey also invites Ghost Rider home for Christmas with his awful domineering mother, who is definitely not ready for that meeting <laughs> of Harvey's first ever friend. <laughs> Again, this is one that I really liked because it was just it was so funny and weird. And yeah, and we got one more for this issue. We do. And I mean, I'm not going to talk about it for very long because I actually didn't like this one. No, I didn't either. Story 6 is called Free Will. Yeah, well, it's not great. It's a Hulk story. Content warning on this. You can just skip by the next 15 seconds if you think you're going to be sensitive to things that have a content warning on them. The Hulk sees one of the Pantheon technicians standing perilously close to the edge of a cliff. And in talking to the man, he figures out that he's trying to die by suicide. After which point, Hulk basically nags him into going back. He's not helping. He's just like nagging him. He's like, you're not really going to do it. I'm like, that's fucked up. That's fucked up bullshit. And I don't like that one bit. And come to find out this was instigated by Delphi, who had told the man he was going to end it at the cliffs, which is just like the whole thing was fucked up. Like, I don't know. There was no point to this. It was just really dark about this man who was so depressed that he wanted to take his own life and was nagged into both going over there to like, go through with it and then was like nagged into not doing it it just was oh yeah it's not it's not a particularly good story anyway and it's got some really problematic elements and i reread it and i couldn't figure out why it was included in this issue nope it had no correlation so i would like to also include the national suicide hotline which is 800-273-8255 please reach out if you're having bad thoughts Yeah, I think our problems with this story are a good way to segue. I think we share the same opinion about this issue as opposed to the first two. Man, shit's starting to go downhill. I know. And there's a term in video games that's called shovelware. So shovelware is used to label stuff that's like hastily made and it's 
at best of like middling quality and it's just kind of shoved out the door onto the market in order to make a quick buck. You usually would see this with like a lot of like licensed products like, you know, movie tie-in games, things like that. And this issue really feels like the comic equivalent of shovelware after those first two issues because several of these stories don't really feel holiday oriented. And again, that Spider-Man versus Mephisto story, it feels like something that a writer was just like, well, we could do this and this and this. And the editors are like, fine, whatever, throw it in. Sounds good to me. I wasn't really paying attention anyway. Well, speaking of which, (laughs) 94 and 95 is where the holiday specials get a little weird. Marvel actually has this blog entry called A Journey Through Marvel Holiday Specials Past. We'll throw it into the notes. But that entry notes that 1995 didn't have a holiday special. And all they say about it is, for whatever reason at the time, the Marvel holiday special skipped a year and returned in 96. But like, whoever was writing that article didn't seem to do a lot of research because there was a 95 holiday special. I was going to say, I'm, I'm, but... unless I'm <laughs> delirious and have imagined that I read that crazy monster of a comic. Well, you, you did. But whoever was putting that issue together, I don't think was doing a lot of due diligence in the production process because 1994 appears on that specific holiday special, which it's a cover with Spider-Man and then a wreath and then it has 1994 written under it. And it's got the same title and the UPC code as the previous 94 issue, but it's not a variant cover. It's like all new content. So even though it's got a 94 copyright date, it probably was the following year's issue. And my guess is it came out towards the end of 94, kind of like the 91 issue. And then there is confusion about the dates or someone wasn't really paying attention and they just kind of let it slip out the door. So now that we got that out of the way, let's do 1995. And this time around, the notable creators were Kurt Busiek, John Ostrander, and Sal Bashima. And... At this point, I'm sorry to ask, but can you give us a quick summary? No, we'll keep going. Choo-choo. All aboard. We have another six-story anthology. The first one is called Catastrophe on 34th Street, and it's starring the Beast and Iceman, who end up helping a former misunderstood magma monster from below the Earth find the Christmas spirit for his kids. So Beast dresses like Santa, and Iceman gets them in and out without getting scorched. Yeah, he gets them into the lair of the into magma monsters. The, the magma land or whatever, wherever the magma people are. <laughs> yeah, and that's pretty much it. Like, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a thing. <laughs> God, it was, yeah. So the second story is called A Midnight Clear, and this one was a fucking wild story. It's uh, insane. It's about Captain America who's looking for human trafficking victims. So, hey, we've got that stranger danger back. It's not even human trafficking. It's white slavers. Ugh, that's right. Like, I was trying to put a, a decent spin on it, but you're right. They did say that. They did have think, a little African-American child, which is just awful. And this is the one where I think John Ostrander wrote it. And John Ostrander is the guy who was like, he earned a lot of fame for writing The Suicide Squad in the 80s. He did a lot of really good stuff, but he also wrote these kind of like grim and gritty stories that, you know, were outside the norm of what I would normally put into a holiday special. Yeah, this was, yeah, this had nothing to do with the holidays other than it was snowing. And (laughs) it happened to be at his grandfather's cabin, just mysteriously, they just were randomly there. Yeah. And so, of course, he beats them and he saves the kid or what the fuck ever. 
Yeah, I mean, and there's a, there's a whole thing where he's remembering meeting his grandfather for the first time. It's it's dumb. It just again, it feels like somebody just slapped this out, and everyone involved went, "Yeah, good enough." Yeah, and you know, again, we're vibing hard with the midnight and anything that has to do with a Christmas Carol. So that's super fun. She said sarcastically. <laughs> so story number three is called Losing the Blues and is a Fantastic Four story featuring The Thing, who is attempting to help but is just bumbling around breaking shit in the process, and runs into a little girl who is Jewish and feeling left out of the holidays, and there's this whole, but it's the spirit of the season conversation, and a lot of open theft and more stealing of Santa Claus charity containers. Ding, that's two. (laughs) And, I mean, this was just such an eye roll. <laughs> it really was. Yeah. No, nothing was learned. There was no lesson, really. It was some, some like, but you can get into the spirit, even if you feel left out. <laughs> I feel left out, too. <laughs> it's like, good for you. Like, you're a superhero. Just do a mitzvah. God. Yeah. Yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> you know, it is nice that they at least paid some actual lip service to Hanukkah, but whatever. So the fourth story (laughs) was awful and it was called The Eternal Game and is an absolutely not holiday at all related story about Silver Surfer. Yeah, I'm just here to confirm everything that Jessica just said. It's not good and it's dumb. I tried to skip it accidentally, (laughs) but subliminally on purpose. (laughs) Sorry, not sorry, Silver Surfer. Nothing against you, but your story was awful. So there's some sort of a weird, unnatural shift in the normal pattern of space, and he goes to check it out, and he saves a young woman from dying and helps her to try to escape from some beings who are following her, and he shields her, but she ends up being actually part of, like, the eternity, and she was just being called home and didn't understand, and this had nothing to do, again, with the holidays. It was just yeah, bullshit. It's again, it's one of those stories where you read it and you're like, why is this included? And I think they just needed padding to justify the prize. Yep. I'm going to have to agree. They could have made this five. Five stories. That's all they needed. So story number five was literally just a one page set of panels. Uh, It's called Star of the Show, and it just features Spider-Man putting a star on the tree at Rockefeller Center and then seeing Santa in the sky. Yep. That's it. That's all that happens. And then story number six is titled The Night Before Xmas, and it's just a retelling of the poem Night Before Christmas, but with the X-Men. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And it's done. Yeah. Okay. We're on to the final of the original issues, which is from 1996. This issue features work by folks like Mark Wade and George Perez and Stan Lee and Rick Leonardi, to name a few. Let's motor through the stories that we got in this issue. You'll notice, everyone, that my descriptions have gotten more and more (laughs) succinct as I dislike the story more and more. So number one was called Not a Creature Was Stirring, and it's a Spider-Man comic about how stubborn his boss at the paper is about (laughs) Spider-Man. That's it. That's all it is. It's just him being stubborn. Number two was Unto Others with my girl, Kitty Pride. Finally getting some holiday action in, because as we know, widely known, she is Jewish. I think she's like arguably like the biggest 
name Jewish character in the Marvel Universe, but I'm, I'm not sure about that. Which, here's my thing. Why are we just now getting Kitty Pride in this? We've had other Hanukkah stuff and we have fucking Samson show up? Are you fucking kidding me? Really? That's who we get to do this? Well, okay. Kitty Pride at this point in time was not really that big a character. Like she was, you know, she was well known, but she wasn't as big a deal. She was always kind of like a minor supporting character. She was on the team Excalibur at the time. Mm. You know, she was she was still considered by everybody to be a kid and kind of one that was just sort of there. You know, she wasn't the badass, canonically bisexual pirate that we got in Marauders now who jet sets around the world on this badass boat with her pet dragon, Lockheed. 100% love. She's the type of bisexual I strive to be. Yeah, and I mean, like, one of my prized possessions is I got our friend Tom to do a custom cover of House of X number one with Pirate Kitty fighting a bunch of rough-and-tumble sailors alongside the thing is Blackbeard, you know, in her Red Queen outfit from Marauders. It's great. So good. It's so good. Hopefully Mike will post that in our show pictures after. Oh, yeah, we can do that. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty fun. Tom is amazing. Yeah. So Kitty tells a very watered-down version of the Hanukkah story and helps a girl find her wallet and also compares being black with being Jewish or a mutant. Like, no, no. (laughs) Full stop. Full stop, Marvel. Full stop. <laughs> that was as many stopping noises as I felt I could make here. Because the idea was that this girl's church had been burned down and Kitty was trying to, I think, relate with being another hated minority. But it's like, it's real heavy handed and it doesn't work. Yeah. No. I mean, I, I do get what they were trying to do. I just don't feel like it succeeded. Yeah. So story three was another Silver Surfer story called Hark, the Herald, where he learns about the spirit, again, this nebulous spirit of the season in a very roundabout way involving aliens and stuff. Yep. That's it. Yeah. That's that's all that happens. The fourth story was a sci-fi and Western called Ambush at Angel Rock that, I'm not going to lie, it was action-packed, but it was not at all holiday-themed. No, not at all. It was just cowboys and aliens. That's all it was. Mm-hmm. And story number five was called Humbug with the X-Men, particularly Wolverine, of course, who is the biggest humbug of them all and shows us his jaded version of the holidays, which, yes, my dude, agree with that vibe, one hundo. <laughs> he basically like got on his own soapbox and was like, people only want presents. And I'm like, hey, buddy, I see you. I see you. That's what's happening in this world. Agree. Yeah. Okay. After this issue, Marvel basically stopped making the holiday specials for almost 10 years. And like I said before, there's not a lot of documentation about this stuff, but I'd be willing to bet that this was a casualty of Marvel's 96 bankruptcy. You know, things were really fucked over at Marvel at this time. Like, not only were they now competing with all of their top talent jumping ship and forming Image Comics, but they were also dealing with all the fallout of the speculation boom that had been really driving comic sales during the era. And this was all under the stewardship of Ron Perlman, who was the corporate raider that I mentioned in our Deathmate episode. Mm. There's an exceptional article by Ryan Lambie, and he wrote it for Den of Geek a couple of years ago called How Marvel Went from Bankruptcy to Billions. And again, we'll include it in the show notes. But basically, 
Marvel got really heavily leveraged under Perlman right after he acquired the company. But there's a highlight that I think is really relevant to this discussion. Could you take it away? Within two years, Marvel was on the stock market, and Perlman went on a spending spree. He bought shares in a company called Toy Biz, snapped up a couple of trading card companies, Panini stickers, and a distribution outfit, Heroes World. All told, those acquisitions cost Marvel a reported $700 million. And that's in, like, the early 90s. Like, that's wild. That's so much money. Adjusted for inflation? Shit, that's $1.4 billion. (laughs) Yeah. So at this point, Marvel was now saddled with a ton of debt, and then the speculation bubble, which we talked about at length during the Deathmate episode, burst, and it wound up decimating the industry. That Den of Geek article actually notes that comic sales tumbled approximately 70% when this happened, and that obliterated just a ton of retailers. Perlman had Marvel declare bankruptcy, and then there was a whole courtroom battle with a big Marvel investor. And when the dust settled, both that investor and Perlman were gone from the company, as were a bunch of executives tied to Perlman. And then after that, the company had to rebuild itself, which we know eventually did, and it was in large part because the new leadership bet heavily on success in the movie business. But the holiday specials wound up languishing for almost a decade, and then Marvel started the series up again, and we got some more books from 2005 to 2011. And then since then, it doesn't look like we've had anything quite like this from Marvel, but we've gotten a lot more one-shot, holiday-themed specials. And they're still happening on a somewhat regular basis. I don't think we had any this year, but I could be wrong. But yeah, I mean, there's always holiday-themed comics now whenever you go to the shop around this time of year. So So funny. I'm curious, do you have any final thoughts? Like, was there a story across the issues that stuck out to you? I mean, I'm not going to lie. They were all pretty ridiculous and silly. But I really liked Mud Pie, mainly because I really enjoy Captain Ultra and his freaking tagline of being able to do anything better than you. And the fact that he's just this poor, like, comedian who just... Does not even make a living. He's just, like, can barely make it from town to town on his own fucking tour. I love it. <laughs> yeah. No, there were, there were some definite gems in there. And I think these comics, they're really fun time capsules in certain ways. But they limp along the longer you read them. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we have talked for longer than normal. Perhaps we should head on over to the Brain Wrinkles. Let's get the fuck out of Holiday Land. we're at that point of the show where we are discussing our brain wrinkles which is the one thing that is either comics related or comics adjacent that has been stuck in our brains for the last couple of days and we just can't stop thinking about jess you want to take it away well i'm sure you're not going to be surprised that i've been thinking about capitalism and how it affects what we produce or what is given the space to succeed in the art world and the mainstream media art world? This is just one example of a fuck ton. There were so many issues with getting Spider-Man into the Marvel Universe, of course. Everyone knows that story because it's owned by Sony. But luckily, in this case, they were able to strike a deal to get him involved. And we have, you know, the Avengers continuity as it stands now. But it makes me think about the direction that certain franchises would take if artists were just left to their own devices and allowed to just be creative without Mm. the parameters or the constraints 
of having some big company say, no, we've done opinion polls on this and we can't do that. We need to go in this direction. It's like, well, just let the fucking artists do what they do best. And I think we're going to get generally a better product that people are going to want to buy more because it's actually something that was created out of love of creation. I always find that kind of stuff way more enjoyable than the things that are just kind of like plugged out. Yeah. And I mean, most of the comics, I think on both of our pull lists are independent comics. Like I've got a couple of Marvel and DC books, but not many. I think the ones that I have are all, they're all the ones that are given a little more free reign to be weird. Yeah. Like the main one I'm doing right now is Man Eaters the Curse. Right. And that's a, you know, a segue off of the main Man Eaters comic, but it just, it does have a lot of freedom and you know, really strong female characters. But I can't imagine what it would be if it was under the same kind of strict guidelines that I feel that artists for the big two really are put under. Yeah. Yeah. So artists, I see you. I want you to be able to be you. I'm sorry that capitalism exists. The end. (laughs) Well, yeah. And I mean, somewhat related to what you were just talking about, because my brain wrinkle is actually about Spider-Man. And the Marvel Cinematic Universe, oh, but yeah. in a more positive light. No oh, good. You know, because we're recording this in <laughs> in the first week of December, which means we've got about a week and a half before Spider-Man No Way Home comes out. I'm excited to see this. Like, I'm really excited to see this. One of the first movies that I took my steps onto was Spider-Man Far From Home. And he said that he really wants to go see a movie in a theater after he's fully vaccinated. And so he's like, you know, one of the first things I want to do is just go to the movies. And No Way Home is releasing right around the time that he's going to be two weeks out from his second COVID shot. And honestly, I can't wait to take him as well as hang out with some of my other friends who were regular movie buddies before COVID hit and, you know, forced us all to stay indoors. So, Mm. yeah, that's so sweet. It's a nice holiday treat, you know. Like the last couple of years have been really hard for everybody. And it it feels like kind of a a welcome holiday gift where we finally got the kids vaccinated and we've had our booster shots and we're able to start seeing people in person again. And we're, we're finally at the end of the tunnel, I hope. Yeah, I hope so, too. Yeah. Well, we will be back in two weeks and I believe that will be. So I believe I believe we'll be back in two weeks and that'll be our final episode for the sandman book club that we've been doing which that's the plan yeah good lord we've been doing that for almost five months now at this point it's been a yeah it's been a while i i kind of didn't think about how long i mean we're not doing anything you know to the extent that brad and lisa are at comic book couples counseling they're doing one issue one week at a time that's an undertaking i feel like we breezed right through it (laughs) comparatively And they're doing it in a very different way. And I believe it's for their Patreon subscribers, but it's really cool because they're just it reading is. it one issue at a time. So that's going to be a couple of years of content. Like that's, <laughs> that's wild. That is a lot of time to spend talking about one series, but. Oh yeah. It'll be interesting to see how they feel about it at the end. Yeah. I'm very curious. When all sudden done. <laughs> but yeah. And then after that, uh, who knows what we'll be covering, but. Thank you for spending your holidays with us, at least a little bit. We'll be back in the new year, and until then, we'll see you in the stacks. Thanks for listening to Tencent Takes. 
Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson, written by Mike Thompson, and edited by Jessica Frazier. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who you can find on Instagram as LookMomDraws. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to TenCentTakes.com or shoot an email to TenCentTakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. The official podcast account is TenCentTakes. Jessica is Jessica with a, and Jessica spelled with a K. And Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. If you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop.